Welcome to You Talking with Greg. I am back with one of my favorite interlocutors, Layman Pascal, who keeps popping up here for unaccidental reasons because I keep <laughs> inviting him back because I want to talk to him. <laughs> Layman, hey. Hey, man. I'm trying to imagine what it would look like if I was popping up for accidental reasons. <laughs> <laughs> right. What would that look like? That might be a problem. I'm going to get on my podcast again. <laughs> right. I didn't invite him. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about issues of relational value, self-esteem. Before I do, I just want to comment. We are coming off of a really cool uh, metamodern spirituality retreat. Uh, Brendan Graham Dancy, Dempsey organized that, and Layman was our leader, and it was a real big success. So thank you, friend. It was really enjoyable. And uh, yeah, my felt sense in that uh, community was, yeah, there's really some seeds that were planted. Uh, for an emerging ethos and exploring this kind of space in a really healthy, mature way. So I thought that was cool. So thank you. Yeah, I'm looking forward to using that experience as a yardstick to measure what goes on in Austin, uh, as well as trying to think out how we um, make it more stable, right? Can we yeah. more predictably generate that kind of experience? And then what can we do to it? Can we anchor it? Can we expand it? Uh, what are the possibilities here? Lovely, lovely. So uh, today we are talking about what I think actually is a pretty central concept in relation, uh, and that's sort of relational values, self-esteem. You shot me a note. We had a little bit of exchange, and uh, we said, hey, yeah, come on, let's do the you talking thing. Um, so you want to give a little frame or, or kind of what was percolating in you, and then we can sort of dive in and see where the rift takes us. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm interested in all these uh spiritually resonant outlier cases of relational value. Uh, how does, uh, how do intra-psychic relations operate in this space? What's the relationship to God? What's the relationship to nature, right? Uh, to what degree is relational value mutual and two-directional or one-directional? All these kinds of different questions that are uh, really key to a lot of the themes in spiritual and religious history that haven't really been examined through a psychological lens, except by a handful of people. Right. I probably want to bring Nietzsche up because he dove into value and, mm -hmm. and the different ways that we relate to value as people mm -hmm. in a very, I think, spiritually open sense. Right, right. Um, so yeah, I'll prompt a bunch of those things, but I guess we should get a little overview of what the theory is first. It seems to me that like, uh, how would I say, you know, Darwin gave us a pretty good theory for describing the actions of genes as if they were trying to do something. Mm -hmm. Behavioral investment theory gives us a pretty good description of why mobile organisms with segmented bodies and centralized nervous systems are trying to do what they're trying to do. Right. And then we can ask ourselves why socio-symbolic beings, cultural persons, do the things that they do. Uh, it seems like you started out focused more on the, uh, they're just trying to maximize social influence. And now you have a perverse amalgam of social influence um, being valued, being known, and by those that we value as important. Lovely. Yes. Thank you for that. <clears throat> so yeah, a little bit of the background there. Um, right. So as people know, I back into justification. Uh, this really then is going to frame the culture person plane, and now we're justifying apes, and now we're animals that are behavioral investors, but then we're primates really connected in a social network. In fact, it is the social network that um, sets the stage for our capacity to sync up intersubjectively and then sync up symbolically, symbolic, symbolic, syntactical proposition justification. So that's the network. And then I was tracking as a clinician, I'm tracking the um, motivational structure 
uh, really, especially the relational social motivational structure. Um, and, and I'm coming from an evolutionary perspective. So initially I'm really focused on in a pretty instrumental way from, from a mother nature instrumental way, what's the dynamics that are operative, okay? And you can abstract pretty cleanly that there's social influence as a resource, which can be defined as the capacity to move others in accordance with your interest um, and not be moved against your interest. And so now you create an influence matrix field um, where each individual is investing and in influencing each other um, in ways that could be cooperative and synergistic in ways that become antagonistic and destructive in ways that create hierarchies. Um, and out of that emerge the influence matrix, um, <clears throat> which argues that human primates to a greater extent in, a, in an abstract uh, way can pull together the process dimensions of the self-other dynamic, uh, meaning that I'm tracking how we are relating. And, and then the abstraction of the how we are relating <clears throat> can be placed on three process dimensions of a vertical competitive dimension, like, okay, one of us has more power than the other um, versus less, et cetera, identifies the pole of dominance versus submission. And then you get an affiliation. We're going to connect share interests, or we're going to diverge and then compete around those hostility potentially. Um, and then finally, there's a dimension of involvement, dependency, and, and independence. Uh, and that's the green line. So you get a red, green, and blue line all navigating what initially was framed as <clears throat> high social influence versus low social influence and called the black line. And that's why it gets the influence matrix, okay? But what emerges over time in me, as, especially as a clinician, <clears throat> is this idea of just instrumentally moving people is a lot, is, isn't really um, adequate to the task of what it is that we're actually doing because you can instrumentally move people <clears throat> a whole bunch of different ways and not be, feel secure, not feel, there's other things that are going on and I'll speak to more of this. But basically um, I was tracking uh, this literature, I was doing clinical and I came across Mark Leary's work, okay? He's a social psychologist who did work on with Roy Baumeister on belonging. And then he was looking at the self-esteem literature, okay? Uh, and, and looked at what self-esteem literature was and argued that actually self-esteem need to be reconceptualized um, as a, the ground of self-esteem was a barometer of what he called relational value, okay? And this is actually where I pick up the term. So what he argued is that people's sense of self-esteem is actually a mere internalized calculation of the extent to which they're valued by others, okay? And he argues that if you do that, then self-esteem isn't just like something that we should actually inherently preserve, but it's actually a barometer function for picking up something super important and to then falsely elevate self-esteem while you can try to convince individuals that their relational, you know, whether or not attending to relational value, the lichen was trying to get your meter in your car to just say full, even though your gas may be really empty, that doesn't do a whole lot, you know? So he then grounds this both in an evolutionary analysis, a functional analysis of self-esteem, and as I came across the term relational value and contrasted in a social influence, something popped for me, which was this very big distinction between instrumental capacity to move people in a particular way and really being grounded and being seen, known, and valued, okay? Um, and so we can imagine individuals that A, have a lot of influence over us, but it's precarious, like an asshole boss, right? You can hate your boss. They can have a lot of influence over you, but if you hate them, 
right? If the, as a despotic tyrant will often find out, if the people hate you and you, and you lose power, <laughs> you're in a very vulnerable spot, right? And quickly the flip, if the flip happens, you're doomed. So having power over an individual but not being valued is obviously a precarious situation. That's one point. The second then point that I saw over time was, hey, a lot of people, and this is the whole point of justification uh, dynamics, is that you can present a persona and try to justify that, but it's for the social influence field so that you create an impression that other people like, but it feels fundamentally different than what you truly are. So there's a discrepancy, and this is, of course, um, in the unified theory, it's just through the Rogerian filter where you're trying to manage impression so that other people love you, but it creates a false sense, a false social self that's disconnected with your organismic valuing process, okay? So in that case, you have social influence and even have some value, but it's false value, okay? So ultimately what I came to argue would be that the most stable, grounded, coherent, integrated social relational position would be to be, have social influence and be seen, known, and valued by important others. And then the navigation of these dynamics of getting instrumental influence and at the same time being valued, seen, known, and valued, but I'll just say value for short, is, is a really complicated iterative social process. And I think it really, it becomes an interesting way to then capture the black line, the central line, where people are both experiencing the desire to move others and, and be moved and be in cooperative ways, at the same time being seen, known, and valued. And how that dynamic operates is, a, is a, in my opinion, a really uh, nuanced, somewhat simple, but also nuanced way to watch that relational system uh, operate sort of in the primate heart and then the justification and the persona. Um, so I'll stop there and see if you want to pick sure, up on anything yeah. in relation. Uh, one of the things I get curious about in that is how how sensory versus abstract that it could be and how it operates at different time scales. So totally. like arguably we're doing this, this is a social event here. Totally. We presumably think it will accomplish social influence while making us feel known and valued by important others. <laughs> now, those others can be immediate. There's us valuing each other as important yep. others. But then there's also the um, currently hypothetical viewers out there or in the future. What's the difference between um, getting that experience in the moment and getting that experience through something that's basically abstract and unreal in this moment. Totally. Well, the, the argument basically is that you're operating on internal working models, okay? And then the, the system of value will bring, be brought to bear on uh, whatever, what I call the sphere of influence uh, that you're bringing attention to. So it would a lot. Some people would just many like neurotic people. I would argue essentially find themselves very reciprocally narrow, trapped in a particular position that is difficult to decontextualize. And then they highlight particular elements, often sort of pessimistic, vulnerable elements, either in self or in other, and then narrow in on those dimensions of value, which then become salient and they operate on. Okay, um, one of the things that I would often try to help people is to expand, take some of the horse blinders off and get more flexible in the audiences that they could imagine over the short and long term and create sort of an arena of social influence and reflection about the kind of value and influence they want to have, okay? So my basic point would be, it would vary a lot from person to person as to how the internal working models might operate and, and finding out how they operate is really clinically important. And one of the things that I, I went to a big history conference, which was titled, Be a Good Ancestor, 
And actually, I found with that a really interesting way to create an arc of value over time that resonated with me. So when I think about my long-term value, I actually, yeah, I want to be a good ancestor. And that actually opened up a particular kind of space for me to create how, what my internal audience is of being seen, known, and valued. And that, so I would argue there's actually, because of our flexible mental manipulation capacity, we can jump perspectively around a lot of possible viewers of ourselves and actually cultivating that I think is important for complex, adaptive, flexible self-functioning. It seems like we're in a more um, stable position if we have a sense of the different opportunities for arenas in which that can occur. Um, do you think there's any difference in the way it occurs? Like if I'm cut off in traffic and I suddenly go into a no relational value situation relative to another driver, um, is what goes on with me psychological and neurophysiologically different than when I'm uh, participating in an ancestor scenario? Huh, that's a really, that's a good question. I certainly think that the, the operating system, what makes salient, then is gonna, then emerges in relationship to, will create an entire embodied positional structure. And what I would look to that, for example, is just polyvagal theory. Okay, so polyvagal theory basically would then say the embodied structure of the vagal nerve is really tracking, in essence, openness, security, and sensitivity to um, effective responsivity versus sensitivity to threat. Okay, so if all of a sudden I'm in a no relational value system, uh, all of a sudden I'm in a traffic scenario, if I see others that are, you know, in impeding my needs in a particular kind of way, I'll then position myself. Usually there will be a, a fear, anxious potential response of sort of deference and escape or a destructive hostile response in response to this. And I want to eliminate people in relation. So, and I would argue, yes, that would be very definitely embodied. Um, if the audience of myself is, is vast in, you know, loving ancestors of God, of other kinds of structures, I would absolutely think that that signals through the polyvagal nerve into the entire system, a totally different sense of being in the world. And I would argue that self is contextual, meaning that I would have the capacity to be in both of those states, uh, depending on what was being made salient and what my attentional system was um, really emphasizing. Does that get at your question? Yeah, yeah, it does. Thank you. Um... Thinking about that, I mean, one of the things that has occurred in mysticism over the centuries has been attempts to hack our neuropsychological and social processes to make people feel better. <laughs> uh, and so we might say, okay, you could boost up self-esteem in a way that's independent of its actual interpersonal social function. And maybe we don't want to do that, even though that's a tempting option. So then we go, well, what other options do we have for investigating how we could um, influence ourselves to feel better? Mm -hmm. One of those, it seems to me, would be um, examining how well our models actually map the circumstances. Because if our model incorrectly maps the social, then we might be getting false negative feedback or false positive feedback. And then the other thing where we might have some leverage over attempting to feel better as individuals would be... Um, somehow undoing or unpacking any limitation we put on the ability to experience that, right? So we're assuming that people have habit patterns or trauma patterns that inhibit their own free breathing and movement and things like that. Then are we also assuming that there are common patterns of subconscious but semi-voluntary suppression 
of our experience of the actual relational value that we do have. Totally. Yeah. So let's let's unpack that a little bit. Um, uh, so um, one of the things then. So what? I'll go. Let me go back to Leary, and then I'll I'll segue in, and then get into this issue of uh, this intrapsychic relationship we have to self. At least as you talk models, it is really key for psychological health. So. Um, uh, Leary argues that, okay, self-esteem is simply a function of relational value, okay? It's a relational value barometer. And I argue that that's pretty accurate for kids. That is the ground of relational value. Like kids will feel lousy about themselves if they're not popular in their kindergarten and they're not loved by mom and dad and they, they'll track their relational value. And their self-esteem is essentially a pretty good indicator of the ways in which um, they, you know, their detection system is tracking their experience of relational value in the important field domains that they're in. However, what emerges as you become a person starting a little bit at, you know, four to six, and then really taking off and then really elevating into a stable ego self-concept of one's identity, that's a self-recursive reflective, usually mediated by propositional networking sense of being, emerges then on top of this primate self. So now in the basic UTM, uh, updated tripartite model, you have an egoic function of I, me, okay, whereby I now am looking at myself and the adolescent is now an agent that sees themselves behaving in the world and can wonder, why do I behave? Why do others, how do they see me, okay? And because this is a super important process to now navigate social influence, I mean, evolutionarily, now I got to compete with others for mate value and position of role, for an identity consolidation versus confusion, if you use some Eric's terms. Then the identity starts to come online, and now it's like, this is how I feel about myself, okay? So in, unlike Leary, I say, actually, the ego self, experiential self-relation, okay, can take on a life as its own, all right? And I believe that, actually, if you track the way in which people feel public self-conscious and private self-conscious, they will project threats out into the world and then develop a self-critic that anticipates those threats. This is the introject and superego, a critical harsh superego potential or critical parent to use some Eric Burns term where you basically now insert an authority that's looking at you through a lens of critical perfectionistic approval and, and is tracking all the shit that you do that you then put in your head to manage the perspectives that might be engendered as you operate in the social field. So this then puts pressure on your persona and it also then often creates a very intensely critical voice, okay? Those that have this voice will tell me over and over, God, the shit I say to myself, I would never say to somebody else. These are normally often kind, reasonable people. They're, they're sensitive. And then they build this very internal, intense introject, which isn't necessarily dependent on modeling. It really depends on the functional dynamics of the way they project, anticipate threat, and then get often in a negative reinforcement way, oh, you behave this way and then no bad thing happens and that can strengthen the voice. So ultimately what I'm saying is, is an internal working model of an ego on the experiential self is very, very important, okay? And, and it often creates the felt sense of really demeaned relational value. And to the extent that you set up this um, system, it really creates lose-lose, okay? What I mean by that is like, you're going to try to manage your impression and then you'll become somebody that you'll gain social influence. This is Roger's key insight. And then as you do that, your organismic valuing process, inevitably, even if you're successful, you're successful on the basis of being an imposter. Okay. So now you're managing an influence that actually isn't your real self anyway. 
And this is one of the reasons I shifted is like, okay, you have social influence, but you don't have relational value. And you feel that you feel the vulnerability. And it's not surprising because somebody could discover, at least in theory, based on this operating system, somebody could discover the real you that you've been faking it. And then they would see you as a fraud and reject you. Okay. So what does this all mean? It all means that the self egoic self relation is super important and that the ego figuring out how to be compassionate and accepting of the self. Okay, and holding the self in a particular kind of way and creating a healthy iterative relationship between that felt animal child and all of its emotional structure with a narrating judging system is absolutely crucial uh, to many intrapsychic dynamics and holding that relationship to cultivate it, the egoic sense of relational value toward the primate child, whatever experiential self. So I'll stop there and say, okay, so basically what I'm saying is, hey, this, this dynamic is central and creating a coherent, integrative, valued sense between these domains of the psyche is, is crucial in much psychotherapy. Uh, I wonder how independent the different parts of the tripartite model can be in the self-esteem that they have. You were talking earlier about the a situation in which a person's persona might receive a lot of valuation, but they themselves might not uh, either believe it as an ego or actually be able to experience it. Um, is the ideal to have those three parts basically agree in, in order to get a sense of how much self-esteem we have at the moment in our relational circumstances? Or should they be regarded as semi-autonomous entities and it's fine for them to have their own completely different metrics? <laughs> right. I, I, would, I would say I would often think of them as sort of an internal family. I know this isn't exactly an internal family model, but it's very re relatable. And certainly Freud's you know, the three persona and whatever, or the child, parent, um, adult of, of, of burn that gives you so like how should a family be okay well I want differentiation you know I certainly have a persona self it's got different contingencies my egoic narrator and the way it autobiographically situates me meaning wise and my felt sense of primate they're operating on somewhat different contingencies I don't have any problem that I was like oh I feel okay about this but somehow my body feels wrong or it seems like other people don't like me but I'm okay with it um, these kinds of domains, differentiation between them is inevitable because they're operating in different contingency structures. At the same time, I would argue that for the system as a whole to go through the arc of time, you need a coherent integrated pluralism around these kinds of domains, meaning, hey, my heart and my head and my persona need to be in harmony with one another to an extent. And to the extent that they're actually opposed to one another and especially sort of destructively opposed, like the insistence on the persona creating an image that the heart really feels alienated from, you're now in deep trouble in relationship to finding, you know, psychological harmony, balance, and well-being. What about um, other differentiations of the psyche? Like, are there thematically specific forms of self-esteem is sexual self-esteem, emotional self-esteem, intellectual self-esteem. Are those relatively independent or um, is there really just sort of one generalized self-esteem function? So if you look at the literature of uh, the it's sort of, this would be more in life satisfaction, but it will correspond tremendously, I think, to self-esteem. And this would be really one section of it. You can essentially, uh, answer that as yes on both accounts and then put them in relation. What I mean by that is it does seem that the um, self-conscious egoic structure will create an abstraction of self in the world and say, hey, this is how much I like 
things in general, and this is how much I like myself. So they create an abstract structure and say, here's the category, here's the set category, and I can bring an evaluative structure to that general set category. And or I definitely have the capacity to specialize differentiation elements of it. So yes, it is certainly plausible for me to be generally happy with myself, but uh, psst, my sexual performance sucks and I'm really insecure about that. <laughs> no, that was a joke, people. Okay. Um, but, but the point of it is that clearly you can have differential domains and we see this. People have, you know, isolated domains and then they'll collectively organize them into an autobiographical assessment overall. And then they'll iterate and they will contextually shift depending on which domain they're in. There's a sense of um, the value of the self that seems to be directly connected with the ability to functionally coordinate a lot of different systems within us, right? Some days you get up, things are going great. You can just function in all your different parts and you feel fantastic. You feel validated in some way. Is that dependent on or independent of social relational value? Well, I would put it at two, uh, you know, so I want to stack us as animals, as mammals, and as primates, okay, are the, the embodiment of our structure. Uh, so the animal structure is less social to me, at least at its base. It's sort of like, okay, did I get a good night's sleep? <laughs> Am I sick or not? <laughs> Have I metabolized the, the basic eating process? And do I feel in good mastery and growth potential with my environment? So that's your animal into mammal. Then it's your, you know, mammal into primate is like, hey, how do other people, am I securely attached and am I loved, seen, loved, known, valued, or am I not? Um, both of those are animalistic embodiments and your system will track both of those. Um, and so, yes, I think you can wake up really feeling like shit, even you know, I think my family loves me, but if, <laughs> if all of a sudden you got pancreatic cancer... <laughs> wake up feeling like shit, right? Uh, as the system just, um, you know, collapses based on its own, you know, metabolic whatever structure. Um, but the felt sense of, oh, uh, of drud, of what I see in the neurotic conditions is an identity affective relational triangle that's a clusterfuck of tangled neurotic loops. And I wish this person cared for me and I can't believe they did this to me and I can't believe I reacted this way and what's wrong with me and why do I have these kinds of issues? Uh, so the social matrix of identity and the felt sense of being in the world and then how you imagine or really experience other people to love you is you know, what we see in the psychotherapy room as the primary area of emphasis. Um, and I would certainly argue, and you could totally see this in kids, I mean, to the extent that they're popular and loved and the family and the peers all like, oh my God, you're special. That system wakes up and is ready to be engaged to the sense that it's ignored or experienced adverse childhood events and is neglected, teased, bullied. Fuck, the system really responds very differently. This is a very interesting to think about in terms of spiritual and developmental ideas. Um, I'm thinking about the famous, the, the legendary story of the Buddha, right? So there's a situation in which he's getting all kinds of social influence and relational value. But as a result of certain observations and encounters, uh, it's like a different part of himself starts to emerge. He gets more depth or a new operating system or touches another hidden aspect of himself. And now this part, even though he's being validated in all those other areas, this new identity aspect is not being known. Uh, the people around him are not getting it. And that's painful enough to drive him out of the palace into the wilderness, looking for some people who can speak to that part. 
so it seems like a lot of spiritual history revolves around that story where if you get a different kind of a self inside suddenly those previous things that you were using to set that up stably are not working anymore and you need to find some new way to describe it to people or find people who can see that and then potentially value it totally i mean i'll speak to my own uh not align myself with them like liking myself to buddha but anybody <laughs> that does uh, i think anybody that does deviant uh you know either disastrous or cutting edge which we don't know when the convention is just looking at it right you're then on the outside so my heart finds this you know tree of knowledge thing and my assessment, my internal assessment, oh my God, it's unbelievably beautiful, good, and, and you know, really desirable. And again, also, I've spoken to this a number of different times, and, and I have a father who I love, right, but also finds this to be just really sort of different and doesn't see it, rightfully so, doesn't see it fitting into convention, sees I'm a great counselor, right, and it's like, what are you doing? And my heart is like, I know that this is super important and we should if we could all then upgrade our operating systems with this we will all benefit um so i'm going to pursue this and as i do then i get alienation in relation and then you have this real felt sense of challenge uh you know there's a line in a uh, i'm horrible with culture and there's a, but there's a line in a, a well-known song about the way, relationship between you know people are sacrificing their passion for fame you know, and basically what that says is, hey, your organismic value and process and egoic structure and privately sees all of this and can align with it and is feel drawn, the passion draws you there when you situate just yourself in relation. But other people want you to be something else. You know, you talk about audience capture and all this other stuff. And now you gather the influence you have to make in the world, pulled into this world, and then you get this massive amount of tension, Okay. And I think the saints and sages that we now look back on historically, um, we do so because we now, in retrospect, are able to see with the advantage of time and history, we were able to see that they actually did have this capacity to see beyond convention. They found particular kinds of truths that the uh, local system were blind to. They sacrificed their relational value in those conventions because they were committed to these truths, often to great suffering, right? Often to great isolation. Uh, look at Nietzsche. You know, and then we go back and we're like, oh, wow, those people were able to rise above the blind convention of the time. They sacrificed aspects of what they could have gotten in if they personated it, but they're true to themselves. And it turns out they're true to themselves, at least the way we will value it. It was like they were onto something. And now we benefit from that work. Um, and I think it sort of speaks to like, you know, hey, how do you do that? Well, maybe you can start to identify with people in the future. You know, Nietzsche's like, Hey, I'm writing for people that don't live yet. <laughs> and I think that's the way some, you know, people will do it. And But I think it's a very, very, it's just too simplistic to say, oh, well, that's what you should do to be your true self. There's always this negotiation process and, and each case has got to be taken on its own account. I'm interested in um, the transition into the uh, socio-symbolic personhood. And... I think there's an interesting way of inquiring as to whether there's a, a minimum value to entering that space and whether that value is positive or negative. There's mm. two different interesting philosophical ways of looking at that. So let's, I want to probe into the positive one first. Is there, um, do you get a plus one in value 
merely by entering the game, by entering into the space of the signifiers. Because we might say, you know, this is a common sort of spiritual concern is you, you basically have some intrinsic value to begin with merely mm -hmm. because you are a person right this mm -hmm. is the heart of even abortion debates and things sure. like that Absolutely. it's not neutral you get like an anti-in yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, right so yeah no matter how low you go on your mm -hmm. relational value and social influence it never goes quite to zero right i call this fundamental dignity at least yeah. in you talk but yes absolutely mm -hmm. now um, that's very nice and that's very healing and it can be very securing to help someone who feels themselves slipping uh, mm -hmm. to let them know that they're not going to slip all the way. Mm -hmm. uh, however, there's this other kind of model which says you sort of, uh, you start with lack, right? You, mm -hmm. you, you begin the game at negative one. Mm -hmm. So that it's, I, I imagine it like a you enter into the, the virtual matrix of squares and you're on one of the squares and so you can't see that one. And the mm. fact that there's that missing one sets you up into this chain where you're always moving towards the um, culturally constellated desire object, uh, which is never fundamentally satisfying as you move right. through this space. The Lacanian models are like right. this, alien mm -hmm. models are like this. Sure. What, what do you think about that sense that it's quite the opposite, that entering into the symbolic space is inherently a kind of uh, loss of value or the ability to evaluate yourself as being down one? So that you have to start the game. Totally. Well, I, I, you know, in, I contrast fundamental value with incremental value. Okay, and the capacity clearly you can lose it. Okay, so by virtually entering in the game, now you can lose it, and then that makes you conscious of the negative. <laughs> and by virtue of making the positive claim, we create the contrast of the negative. So you create the if we create the positive scare, you've created the negative space around it, and now we can flip you around and okay, now you're in the negative space. Okay, so we are in the very act of doing it creates dialectics, positive negative dialectics that we need to be conscious of. I certainly think that the idea that once that we oh yes, we certainly ought to confer fundamental dignity. We need that by virtue of needing that, that's a psychodynamic defense against the negative. A deep way of being in the world is to swallow the negative. You know, Bard and obviously Cadell Lass are doing uh, uh, all of the negative eventology that they're really interested in. To me, it's deep, fascinating, tantric work, you know, uh, and to speak to what ground is it that we're actually, you know, as I tell Bard, I'm a psychotherapist, not a psychoanalyst, uh, and I'm not doing, I'm doing more sutra than tantra in my own particular work. I want an ethos of, uh, of general ethos of attachment security. So people to be, you know, for the child to be born in, you want an attachment security of foundational love. And that becomes a ground that's going to be a lot better. And then we can abstract about the negation and wonder about the struggle and recognize there's always a dialectic, you know. I don't know that I'm against the death penalty. I don't know that, I mean, that's a complicated thing for me. Should Ted Bundy be put to death? Maybe. Meaning in my structure, the way in which he degrades others incrementally loses such fundamental value. So, you know, I'm not a foundational, oh, always positive regard. I've hung out with some psychopaths in prison. Uh, I know what that looks like. That's a scary shit. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of complexity here in terms of just the pragmatics of valuing people um, and this whole issue about what it sets us up for. Uh, to me, I see all those as beautiful, refined, you know, logos questions uh, about our existence. And as you probe them, you do realize, yes, of 
course, this is sort of the opposite of this sort of straightforward position really is this deep psychological needing grounding and how we relate to that. Well, you know, they get a lot of different fascinating answers. Even if the negative comes first philosophically, it would have to come second psychologically. Right, the psychology has got to be shining the light and then you see it and feel grounded. And then the abstraction of that, A, where that comes from, yes, we can wonder, you can create your Freudian models in relationship to this. Um, but really for me, those are also, well, those are in response to the abstractions uh, that we need to build from, the concretes, the, you know, abstractions, ironically, that we then need to build from. And then we need to recursively encounter those developmental. You were talking a little while ago about um, the, the intense degree to which young children are dependent upon relational value from others. Uh, and then the ability through cognitive development and maturation to get things like a, a critical voice in your own head. And there are a lot of ways in which the standard critical voices can never be satisfied, that they represent a kind of uh, obscene provocation to the psyche at all times. But I'm wondering how you feel about the possibility of of a deeper interiorization and consolidation of the other into the self such that the individual becomes an important other who can know and value themselves. How, how far can that process go? Um, well, I think the initial ground of the of development, okay, is to bring forth, really, I, I think the argument that you know your mother before you know yourself is, is accurate. So developmentally, we're actually grounded by the mirroring of the other originally, and then we develop a self in relationship to that. And then the, the way in which that self differentiates becomes, a, you know, the self-object relations, we do a little object, okay, it's a very, very important process, but you don't have any reflective capacity at this juncture, obviously, to sort of differentiate and navigate. That's essentially just happening in its primary process on its own. There's, of course, little recursive processes happening, but no meta-recursive processes on that. It's when we get into a self-conscious reflective system you know, beginning a little at six and then establishing itself in 11 or whatever the adolescence is, which is like, huh, Young has a great quote. I was like, he's walking one day and one day I realized I am myself. Okay. And this then is the ego explicitly coming through a fog. That's what he said. And then all of a sudden now I can do an I, me relation uh, that now all of a sudden captures enough stability that I can now transcend it through the time and realize I'll be me for the rest of my life. And then whatever that means. Okay. So, so then the question fundamentally is, is like, okay, how do we position then this I-me relation or um, ego-self relation uh, in the social world, in the context of, of being? I see a lot of good work in terms of, well, at least with the psychotherapy. I, th I think the Eastern traditions and the Western traditions approach this quite differently, um, or at least, they're, they're, and, but complementarily. And that is in relationship to what the Western traditions are trying to do. They're trying to cultivate a secure sense of self, which the matrix will tell us it's really a self-other matrix. Okay, it's, a, it's like the felt sense of being in the world is grounded in the internal working models of the other. And then the capacity to be self-othering, meaning sort of the internalize the other, to fuse with the other effectively, but also have self-other differentiation, is central to a coherent, integrated, pluralistic, flexible, adaptive psyche. So I'll pause there and see if that gets to what you were asking. 
uh, yeah. in relation and see if then we need to elaborate on it to see. I'm not certain that I got all the nuance of your question. I think I'm satisfied um, because I think what I'm doing is now starting to probe a number of different ways that the social relations can be internalized or not. Um, so rather than exploring that one further, I'll shift slightly to um, the way social influence might function intrapsychically. So one of the things that's common in a number of spiritual traditions is the uh, unusual in everyday life attempt to uh, think and focus and feel things on purpose, right? Normally we're responsive in our emotionality, but you might go to a monastery and they say, here, sit down and practice this emotion. Oh. It's a very strange kind of thing. Uh -huh. Even to be a, um, an intentional contemplative thinker about some problem in life or in the sciences, that's unusual for most people to think about something on purpose. Yep. But that suggests if we envision um, our different psychic capacities as a community, does that constitute a form of social influence mm. within the self? Because mm -hmm. there is a kind of um, esteem that's built up in a person as a result of engaging in those practices. Totally. Well, yeah, I mean, so here, here's, um, here's one way, here's the way I would see it, or, or a way that speaks to this. So a lot of individuals then are then trapped <clears throat> in um, you know, the, the terror. So they, they're, they're in triple negative neurotic loops. What that means is there's negative situations, negative feelings. They get criticized, okay? They, you know, they try to date somebody and they get rejected. Uh, and they have this big hope that they'll be loved. And then all of a sudden they're not. And then the stinging of that, okay, then permeates into the, and the implication. And by the way, the justification system, um, people in ACT and, and certainly uh, the cognitive psychotherapies, you can now abstract and create these really rigid nightmare narratives. I will always be rejected. I am a loser. These are essentialists. They transcend space and time. They now create the narrative on, of the self uh, that's really, really constraining. It's really brutal. And then the response, the defensive compensatory response is I'm going to try to avoid situations that elicit this. I'll avoid feeling this way. I'll blame myself for feeling this way. I'll blame other people for rejecting me. Okay. But to do that now means you're dealing with character armor. The focus of your position is to avoid things. You're not learning and growing in a particular way. And when the ego looks at the self and says, hey, am I confident in your capacity to deal? Do I have compassion for why you do what you do? Can I accept the world? Can I move about in, with an efficacious way that feels and instills a healthy kind of pride in me? Fuck no. <laughs> You know, it's like the world is sitting, you're sitting on a bunch of mouse traps of horrible feelings that are catastrophic, signaling disaster that you can't really cope with, okay? So the felt sense there of the entire thing is this defensive, vulnerable, fragile way of being in the world. So if you could sit and, and at a Western and behavioral view, Albert Ellis does this, so he has social anxiety, okay? And he reframes the whole social experience as opposed to being horrific and disastrous, he's actually going to move into it and ask girls out and try to get a hundred rejections. Okay. And that, that, you know, in a standard cognitive language, that reframe about what he must be, I must not get rejected to it's no big deal to here's a live process. Then the capacity to bring that into his psyche 
get exposure to it and gain mastery of it as he sort of integrates it in uh, to his system and realize that a lot of the beliefs he had were kind of delusional and unnecessary. So this is the cognitive angle on this, but I think you could apply it to your experiential angle. I think you apply it interpersonally. It's like, hey, how do we gain exposure, hold various elements, re-narrate and afford ourselves the capacity to be experientially engaged, be aware and accept and have a robust uh, psychic that's integrated, flexible and adaptive. You feel that way, you're gonna feel totally different across a wide variety of different domains and the capacity to enter into a wide variety of different negative spaces. You were talking with John um, uh, about sort of grieving the death of God, right? And a whole bunch of that was like, do we do enough to cultivate the capacity to know what it is to have deep terror, deep grief, and be present in relationship with that without being completely overwhelmed and shattered? My answer is no, we don't fucking do that. We try to hide and avoid, but actually that sets us up to be fragile and, and, uh, and not robust in relation. So I think these practices our process, practices would afford a coherent integration around a wide variety of different domains that then instills a sense of mastery, a sense of confidence, a sense of being in the world that is associated with, you know, self-esteem, if you want to use that term. Yeah, there seemed to be, uh, there seems to be something that builds up. Like if you make a, let's say you have a, um, a false and destructive form of self-narrative about some aspect of yourself uh, to change that has immediate positive value but to be one who has been able to change that has some additional value and it seems a little bit like there might be a strong analogy between what we used to call the will and something like intra-psychic social influence capacity right if one's if I, even if i'm going to make myself do something physically one part of my nervous system is going to interfere with my neuromuscular habit system. And people go, well, he had a strong will, but he actually has strong internal social influence in that community. Love that. Uh, because I'll give you an example. I'm coaching somebody right now. Um, and she came in with a very rigid internal critic, okay, uh, that she basically felt subjected to, meaning that you should constantly have it available. Things start going wrong. If she did what she not, then she gets this activation. And then all of a sudden, you know, she's trapped and relating to that. So then we're building a COM MO model. We're saying, okay, let's become aware of this. Let's accept what the structure is. And then we'll see. And then at, she basically came to me literally the other day and was like, you know, I'm watching this critic now. Okay. And I'm relating to it totally differently. It's like, it's like first it's like, okay, I see what you're trying to do. And then, you know, a lot of what you do is just not really very accurate. You grossly exaggerate, you drive me to perfection. I would never treat my kids this way, okay? And so I will hold and observe you, but I'm not going to be granting you the legitimacy that I did in the past, actually precisely because I can now see from this perspective, you really don't carry legitimacy. You're kind of a bully and you bullshit a lot, okay? So you can see in this model that the, our capacity to enter into different perspectival shifting and then per embody those personas and then really think about them, how they move us and then how you can build another system that then is channeling social influence in a very different way. And in many ways, it's sort of like taking the influence of this projection and diminishing it, you know, not trying to attack it, but just let's hold it for what it really is. And it's actually, it's a bully kind of parent that makes good sense as to what emerged. 
but certainly as a parent right now in your head, the way it's working, it's just basically creating more and more fire, psychic fire than light. And I mean, you know, it's much more heat than light. And, and through this perspective, one was like, I, I can't believe I didn't see that before. But now that I actually can occupy this perspectival space, I can really feel I'm getting a handle and a container on it. And she's also watching the way she's reacting with the kids and other people and being like, oh my gosh, what would normally activate this? And then I would be very defensive, often lash out, feel backed in the corner, then hate myself. I'm just treating everybody through this influence space. And the responses are really dramatically different in the way I, I both I feel and other people respond to. There's a famous uh, Nietzschean phrase. It's approximately, uh, he who despises himself still esteems himself as one who despises. <laughs> it's very typical of the way he yeah, thinks. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it reminds me of a, uh, I had a very dramatic event years ago where I was sort of pondering that kind of thinking in connection with my immediately arising subjective phenomenology. And I was sort of uh, seeing the way that valuing web valuation itself was haunting every moment of my awareness mm. uh and so it seemed like everything that came up every unresolved thing that attention brings to you when you mm. sit down and ask it to show you whatever's going on is was a relational context in which i was trying to negotiate myself on some scale that's somewhere between supreme value and utter worthlessness that's the black line <laughs> <laughs> but as i looked at it it started to seem to me that uh, I actually had to be in direct contact with the uh, possibility of the supreme value in order to make those adjudications, right? In order to turn on the evaluative yep. mechanism, I was weighing myself against a lump of gold. Now, how mm -hmm. close or far away am I? But then I'm like, wait a minute, I'm holding that lump of gold. I already right. have the whole lump if I'm engaging in the evaluation mechanism. Yeah. So this was a very interesting kind of practice. Yeah. And what it did was it sort of short circuited all of my evaluation concerns each time mm -hmm. I applied it. Yeah. And as a result, I had a couple of days of like, I felt like the world was broken because now mm -hmm. I was just sitting on the well of ultimate value <laughs> right? <laughs> rather than negotiating where it might be. Wherever mm -hmm. it appeared in my model was actually a place where I had projected it. Right. And therefore I already had it. Yeah. <laughs> Lovely. Now it, it calmed down. The homeostasis sort of reasserts itself right. after a little right. while. But I'm curious how you think about like the underlying structural gesture of esteeming and, and what that implies. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of different things that that, that sparked in me. Um, one is this the generic reality, or not generic, but a really important reality about how perspectival shifting can create these frame breaks and then reconsolidation. All of a sudden, it just, it's just taken as a given that you're, you're valuing in one way or the other. You're like, wait a minute, I'm actually the witness function that's positioning. <laughs> now, all of a sudden, that shifted the whole constellation. Uh, and certainly, I think the value and contemplation and perspectival shifting is, is tremendous. So anyway, that's one comment. But in getting back to the sort of the issue of relational value, um, one of the things that, you know, if I, one way to interpret Nietzsche is like, okay, why does this thing carry so much, why is the critic, for example, carry so much weight and influence? And that is because underneath it all, you're actually valuing the critic. The critic, had, and usually what the critic is doing is you value it because there's a felt sense that it's speaking truth, okay? It's like, it's telling you as it is. It's not, it's, a, it's the parent 
that you know the world's shitty out there and you're like no it isn't dad and you go out and come on it's shitty and then you're like okay you 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 brutalize me a bit but you did it because you're honest at least that's the truth okay so it's this felt sense of sort of these wise perspectives that are not going to sugarcoat the world for you they're not everyone else is fucking nice that's really what's going on but they're not honest okay so you steam the position as though it's bringing to bear a particular sense of you know honesty right and and then that's that's i want to when i'm doing my psychotherapeutic work i want to make sure that i'm tracking how that voice is being held in esteem and what is it like to sort of distance yourself from it what's feel the fear often is now i'm without this voice i'm going to like be naive i'll have naive hope i'll be exactly what i often see in other people that i despise which is just this sort of flowery naivete underneath a, a darkness and i cannot allow myself to sort of like psychically that's a really dangerous position so i think aspects of this system are being held in esteem because they're doing certain functions and i think how to hold all of this you know um would be sort of the meditative practice on the one hand of getting practice of the witness function and then the psychotherapeutic system is like okay now that we're in the world and we're valuing the self how are we actually going to then hold that relation and i think we need to toggle in many ways between sort of just witness function detachment <laughs> and embedded value and what does that dialectic look like? And can I live in both of those spaces? So what came up in my mind just now was Descartes. <laughs> it's like a weird way to read Descartes. Um, you know, one thing when we look at philosophy and history is to, you know, Bard and Soderquist do this a lot. We go, hey, we've got this new network approach it's more appropriate now and we can look back and we can see that these uh mobilistically blind eternalist philosophers were leading us down the wrong track we're done with all that now but i think there's another move where you take that new idea and you read it back in <laughs> to the things you were critiquing all right and when i read descartes uh it seems uh, when i was at university he seemed like an idiot i thought well mm -hmm. i i can doubt everything but i can't doubt my existence or the existence of god and i'd be like oh i could doubt those things what is he an idiot and then later you're like am i really smarter than descartes just because i happen to attend a university in the 20th century <laughs> probably there's a little more to it than that yeah and so if the you know if you take kugito or go some and go well insofar as there's cognitive processes going on then there is existence you're like okay cognition validates being all right and, you know what's with this god thing though so I almost see it like he's saying insofar as evaluation is possible and if i try to doubt everything i'm trying to evaluate what's real and i'm trying to see what's valid or not mm -hmm. but insofar as there's a situation in which validation can be checked that means the possibility of maximum validation is on the table mm. so insofar as you can check to see if anything's valid you've pre-affirmed the existence of maximum validation as a real possibility yeah take the concept of god i would just think of the experience of god well maximal validation is a pretty good approximation of what people point to with that that's brilliant i like that oh speaking of god um so i love god <laughs> <laughs> me too <laughs> wait a minute which one of us am i right who uh, right uh, hey it's like our self others are emerging here like <laughs> Uh, okay, here's an argument for what the the mystical version of the, theism proposes as spiritual okay. practice. 
that all socially generated human esteem is unreliable as can be proven historically and by our constant bad conscience. And the only way out is to hack this process by transferring our mechanism toward an utterly abstract, omni-valuable other, a divine person, and establish Mm -hmm. some omni-confirming circuit between that and the self. And Mm -hmm. then you have to go through whatever you need to go through to make yourself totally transparent and aligned to that other to Mm -hmm. get the maximum possible relationship. But once Mm -hmm. you've done that, you stabilize a maximal esteem loop with this artificial other, and then it radiates from you like the halo of a saint. Mm. The counter argument is that doesn't really happen, <laughs> right? You're just making people vulnerable to some implied social conformity ethos mm. and saints are broken or manic or maybe even trying to deceive people with a persona of success. <laughs> but I'm, I'm curious what you think. Uh, is the social interest subjective confirmation aspect of self-esteem hackable through uh, a relationship with an abstract apex other? Or is that madness? <laughs> I love that question. Um, I think I, you know, I'm I'm happy to embark on it in a mythopoetic way, and and what I would mean by that is there's an agnosticism to the ontology, um, and there are archetypal forms uh, that I think can speak to the underlying psychic architecture uh, that can be hacked in a particular kind of way that I think you know. We want to be grounded in a naturalistic thing to say, okay, what do we, what can we say with confidence this is going on, and then wonder about the exonatural possibility about what may be going on, and be open to that possibility while also being appropriately skeptical, and at the same time seeing what would be, you know, the hack benefits. Okay, so in the hack benefits, from my basic vantage point, and from a naturalistic vantage point, you have an the influence matrix maps onto two things. One is attachment theory. Okay. First and foremost, you get an attachment theory, and then you get a cooperative, competitive, cooperative, competitive theory that's mapped by the uh, interpersonal circumplex. The human psychic function merges those two together, and we then track our social relations, actually very much using the same space-time continuum field, and then we put the self-other in a space-time continuum field, and then we're judging us as moving up and moving down and being secure and surrounded and grounded versus being... outside and in the forest, you know, uh, out of the group. Um, so the, if that's the case, then what is sort of the ground operating system need? Well, at its base, it needs a particular loving other to create a particular sense of felt value. And to the extent that that could be sort of like um, omnipresent and held and hold the fundamental dignity uh, of the other in a particular sort of felt field, I think it's a very valuable thing, you know, uh, because um, now to the extent that, okay, we're just hacking in and we're changing the meter here without any reality. Um, I don't want to go off and just be like, okay, I'm just not going to do that and have that be the only thing you do, especially from a naturalistic perspective, because now you're sort of hacking the system, creating the metaphor and then living by the metaphor, which doesn't feel from my vantage point, real. And so at least you're then vulnerable to a lot of the critiques and you're also vulnerable to the system. It's not gonna be able to just be hacked to, in my estimation, point then as irrelevant of lived experience. But if we think about it in terms of a toggle function, whereby we actually do wanna create this felt sense, it's a kind of a safety and self-fulfilling mechanism as long as it's you know sort of somewhat containable and held not in some fundamental absolutist sense, but held with flexibility, openness, mythopoetic, 
relation, especially then in a collective, um, I think that sort of tilts the scales towards a collective of agape. I think it tilts the scales for people feeling more secure. And I would utilize that. And indeed, this is where I go from, oh yeah, I'm a total Dawkins us atheist to, oh my God, pray to the elephant sun guy. You know, it's like, it's like, because the concept of God, I believe in the concept of God, precisely because I think that we can engender these metaphorical, mythopoetic relations. I think we can wonder about the ultimate nature of the universe. I think if you have that felt sense of subjective connection, that's a potentially beautiful thing. I think you got to be very dangerous in reifying it and then making it metaphysically certain in a particular way that hmm, probably isn't, um, or reifying and saying that, well, because God loves me, I don't give a shit about what anybody else does. Um, I don't think, I think you want to be toggling back and forth. But to have that as a layer of the psyche experience and to be that as part of our collective that we embrace, I'm now at a place that I totally think that's a good idea. So yeah, I love God too. And hope he loves me. <laughs> Those, uh, you know, whether we call them hacks or not, they seem very mm, ambiguous in the sense that it could go very well. <laughs> it could be the uh, transformational apex condition of what it means to be a human being to have that established or it could go very poorly right my access to this uh, hacked system allows me to operate with my self-esteem completely independently of my effects on and with other people yeah and there's something well, similar to the self-esteem movement in that as well right we can see absolutely. ways in which it might be really good to have an even artificially augmented sense of self-esteem under certain conditions right and i think we might you know, Jordan Peterson talks about this a little bit, which is, Absolutely. you know, the uh, the lobsters who get the win chemical <laughs> then become more capable of winning in the future. Mm -hmm. And it might be that people, even if they got an artificial, you know, perhaps even chemically augmented sense of increased self-esteem, might be then more able to successfully navigate constructive relationships with other people. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, uh, they might become completely broken from the system in which it was established. Totally. I think that the um, there's certainly a number of psychologists that would argue that there is evidence, this is debatable and it's a hard thing and the cohort effects and everything, but there's evidence for self-esteem nation in the 1980s, oh God, self-esteem, now we're going to protect self-esteem, and then it gives rise to a vulnerable narcissism, which is like, I'm entitled to this, I should be loved by everybody, I should get my cupcake, etc., um, Jonathan Haidt talks about bubble wrapping and safetyism, which is similar, uh, the, the need then to protect and enhance to just move the meter. Certainly Mark Leary is a critic of these kinds of structures that don't embed the system in a reality. Whether you do that sort of a faux culture where everybody gets a cupcake and everybody gets a trophy, or you do it through God and, oh, God loves you, it doesn't matter what you do. I think you're certainly vulnerable to creating a psychic structure that's out of balance with the reciprocal transact objective reality. Um, I think there's evidence that we've already done that. So to me, yes, you have to put this in a complex adaptive system. Understand that there's no single hack in a complex participatory adaptive system because it becomes procedural and the system will move all around as that procedure emerges in a particular way. So we want to always be placing this thing, these kinds of notions in networks uh, that have iterative feedback loops that unfold and then always be checking them in that context. Uh, I have a kind of heuristic about what a virtue is. It seems to me like a virtue is a, a contemplative feeling and skill that unites more than one value, right? So that when we pursue a value at the expense of other values, it tends to become non-virtuous activity. But when we try to combine multiple values in the same activity, it tends to become mm -hmm. virtuous activity. Mm -hmm. 
And there's something around the, the way that the growth mindset people have pushed back against the self-esteem nation that suggests a virtue to me. Because when mm -hmm. I read that stuff, what I read is the source of humility and the source of self-esteem can be the same activity, mm -hmm. which is authentically trying to uh, gain skill in something you're not good at yet. Mm -hmm. And at the heart of that uh, more virtuous approach, I think, is a shift from a static to a dynamic view of what the self is that is being esteemed. Mm -hmm. Because the fragilization, and let me know if you agree with this, uh, the fragilization that comes with self-esteem seems to be a self-esteem based on what traits you currently happen to have mm -hmm. versus a self-esteem based on trying to do things, trying yep. to grow, putting yourself in situations of learning and challenge. Totally. Yeah. So a couple of different things there. So one, absolutely. I think you want, um, and it's certainly there's a shift in this. If you say, oh, we need to protect self-esteem because you're really good. And then that situation where you have to be good, or we have to lie to you and say you're good in this way. Um, that's a dependent and fragile because if you can discover otherwise, et cetera. Um, so I think the grounding of self-esteem really right now is the focus is the reframe from self-esteem to self-acceptance and self-compassion. Okay, so see, I don't want you to suffer. You have value in general. Watch yourself in a dynamic unfolding. Accept what comes, still be loved in relation, and you know, just orient the process towards adaptive growth. It's growth mindset kinds of notions. And if we reconstruct the self um, as this contextual shifting dynamic entity, um, and then evaluate for the journey rather than destinations and create certain kinds of contingencies, I think you get a much better iterative relation between the valuer and what it's doing. I think there's lots of things that point to that fact. Um, and I think the field has shifted pretty significantly uh, in that direction. So yes, I, I certainly think that the self-relation that we want to cultivate is one that's flexible, is one that's honest. Okay. I, I talk about building emotional calluses. Um, if you get, if you do something foolish, being humiliated or embarrassed or some shame, just get some guilt, etc. Yes, we want to be able to internalize that. We want to have an incremental impact on how we uh, see ourselves. We want to be honest in relationship to that, integrate that. At the same time, we want a foundational holding of love and compassion uh, for the self, for others in relation, and then utilize that to be motivated it's from common mode, be motivated toward valued states of being in the short and long term, given that. So that to me is the dynamic iterative process of context that holds the self, both in terms of what the self is and holds it in a way that's going to be uh, more adaptively responsive to the slings and arrows. That makes me think about how, right, insofar as relational value is established socially, um, how ought we to do that, you know, both from an evolutionary and a psychological health point of view? One I'm sec, I have it. to, yeah, go ahead. Uh, hold on one second, I'm going to pause. Okay, pick back up on that. Yeah, where the heck were we? Uh, I was thinking about, um, I don't know if you ever read The End of History and the Last Man by Francis Fukuyama. It was sort of, it's uh, notoriously spurned now as being a yeah. propaganda piece for 1990s American hegemony. <laughs> it's true. Uh, but there's right. an interesting um, final piece to that book where he, he he's reading Hegel in a certain way. Mm -hmm. And he's assuming that the kind of um, political and market economy we have in the West is the maximum situation you could have in which people yep. could be mutually seen and valued mm -hmm. um, and then he 
debates a little bit at the end how you would deal with what he calls hyperthymias. He's talking about a society of isothymians where we're mutually exchanging relatively equal value mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to a few people who might feel that they actually have superior value. And he's not quite sure at the end of that book how the liberal democratic market economy is going to handle those people. Yeah. And it makes me think about some slightly different alternatives in social order. Right. So one one model is this egalitarian model where the best fit solution for the I guess the maximization of the amount of relational values for everybody to have roughly the same amount of relational value. Now, the hierarchical argument is actually that's bad. You need to set up strong slopes uh, from lower to higher amounts so that you can galvanize people towards uh, increasing capacity and performance for the overall tribe. Mm -hmm. Then there's a third weird solution of like, what if you had a society only of hyperthymians? To what degree can we be mutually maximal in, in our census, right? Can we all be walking yeah. around going, actually, I'm the greatest? <laughs> right? What would it yeah. take for that to be a society? Um, yeah. What do you think about those three? Or what do you think about the, what, what's the mode of social exchange of relational value that simultaneously maximizes people's experience of worth? and maximizes the ability of the group to function in the world. Well, first off, the fact that you framed it that way is great because that's like, that's an, that is the proper framing in my estimation and with the nuance that this black line core has these two sides of this coin of social influence and relational value. And those things are deeply related, but they're also different. So let's take the liberal democratic now market economy. Okay, so the market economy essentially fuses those things together and then basically translate them, the error that I made initially, in, in social influence. So money then becomes an abstract, completely instrumental signifier of one's potential energy that is, you know, devoid of any personal and just as then a signal of like, okay, if I disperse my money, then people will work effort and I can make them completely interchangeable just simply as a function of the economy. So our market economy basically instrumentalized social influence completely. And then basically the personal felt sense of who you are as an ideographic relative to the nomothetic individual. I got to get that in there and make my, so that my ranking on that stat uh, maintains itself as high. Um, so that, so to me, the issue is like, oh, our market economy fucked this up because it conflated or failed to distinguish the felt sense of relational value and social influence and created then market influence, which is necessary in, an, in a stranger-filled system where you don't, aren't personally relating, but at the same time whereby the, we conflate the value of, of just market status and marketability with relational value, we're gonna have serious psychological problems, okay? So the question isn't how do we simply maximize mutual social influence, but it is in fact, how do we actually maximize the relational value social influence network of us all? So that's the first piece that I'll say in relationship to that. And it's a really, to me, when you, you look at the modern economy through a social influence versus relational value lens, I had a conversation with Jordan Hall about this. It's like, that's a real diagnostic indicator of what game A gets wrong and a something that game B should be bringing to bear um, in relationship to kind of like, what are we actually trying to do? We're trying to create a collective mutual system of RVSI lines. That's what we're definitely trying to do. And we can't neglect the RV side of the, and we have. So how do we do that? Great. 
then you get in this other issue about, well, okay, well, there's this issue of how do we all get together, okay? And at the same time, how do we have the freedom and the opportunity to rise above, okay? And the influence matrix then gives us the red, green, and uh, blue lines and says there's a dialectic tensional process between power, love, and freedom, okay? And that to maximize social influence and relational value will be to play off of that triangle and to hold the triangle both with flexible freedom and to recognize that as you emphasize egalitarian, you minimize freedom and power. As you mentalize power, you minimize love and freedom. As you mentalize freedom, you minimize power and love. And so as you pull on one side, like, oh, I'm a libertarian, like, well, okay, you're greenlining and you're failing to recognize these other dimensions. Oh, I'm a communist, you're redlining. And then you're going to have, oh, I'm a complete competitive, you know, uh, whatever authoritarian frame. Oh, you're blue lining. So the matrix says, actually, as you push on one, you create and then come back to your virtue point. And I would say, this is why I do like wisdom as sort of a match of virtue. It's like, well, how do you coalesce virtue? Uh, and virtuosity, to use John's term, with, with a virtuosity, how do you coherently organize the virtues and create music between them? So they play off, well, the influence matrix says you maximize social influence and racial value through the proper dynamic interrelation of power, love, and freedom. a mental picture of people at a dance. What am I thinking of? <laughs> um, Actually, it's a really cool thing because a dance, like a, the dance creates a participatory iterative process when it goes well, right? First to then create a collective um, container, arena, etc., where we're playing off of each other, you know, to create sort of a collective sphere of mutual relational value, social influence. Um, so for me, you know, maybe the metaphor of the dance will what immediately spoke to is this whole issue of like, yeah, what does the social system look like? We come together, harmonize, we each get to play our roles and somehow synergistically our roles create a, a mutually iterative reinforcing collective where the whole is this third other that play, where we each stay individuated, but at the same time participated and emergent. I think that that's a self other or self-society, self-cultural dynamic. That's, you know, those are the kinds of relations that are gonna maximize what we're after. Success in that depends upon um, reading and exchanging certain kinds of signals. So you have on the one hand, uh, this sense, you know, that men should take the initiative to ask a woman to dance as a sort of simplified archetype scenario. And that signals that he can be bold and take risks mm -hmm. and initiate things. Uh, but on the other hand, if that goes too far, that's rape. <laughs> it's <a> once <laughs> right. initiation, right? Mm -hmm. On the other hand, you go, well, actually, we need a society where people are uh, uh, asking permission for everything. But mm -hmm. that can definitely go too far and shut down the whole procedure. Totally. Somewhere in the middle is, is whatever's functional. Sometimes I think of when I try to do it like a yin-yang take on things, I often think the, the yang actually doesn't initiate. The yang, if correct, picks up a subtle signal from the yin and stamps it as if it was initiation on his part. Mm. He officially engages a thing that he was already shown to engage. Mm. <laughs> right? But there's some kind of dynamic there. So I'm curious... Um, you know, what you think those dynamics are, but more broadly, what are the skills we need in order to be able to do the signal exchanging that allows us to functionally maximize relational value? So, well, 
great. Lots of different things that emerge here. Um, so one of the things is I think we need to recognize that the, I believe that the structure of the relational system is well-framed by John's participatory, okay, now knowing, where you enter into a relation where the general default is jazz, okay, with some procedures that create constraints, but then that we're clear on, in other words, these are skill-based elements, but then you enter into a dynamic identifying participatory relation that's open, that's improvisational, that's iterative, okay? So to try to then, in other words, like we, we used to treat social skills, you can do a little bit with training social skills, but in retrospect, I saw a lot of social skill training as being procedural, when in fact, that what's actually needed is a participatory capacity. Um, whether you can train a participatory capacity uh, through procedure, I doubt. Maybe you can, if, if we had the right model for how to do that, um, the right kind of experience with the right kind of iterative feedback, maybe you find a zone of proximal development and people can catch the groove <laughs> of how to do that, um, but not through procedural. So one thing I'll say about it is I think there's a lot of participatory, intuitive, improvisational structure to the relational dynamic, okay? Um, the other is that, yes, the matrix says, well, at a process level, differentiate the content. You know, what are you doing? Are you dancing? Are you making love? Are you cleaning the kitchen? Okay, um, that's content, but the processes are, should be framed by the red, green, and blue line, and you should be looking for the iterative dynamic relation, and those are, the, those are kind of key considerations uh, that I would engage in. Um, so, so those things come to mind. Um, the other thing that comes to mind in relationships, we mentioned the archetypal structure of a man going out, and then what's the yin? You said yang? I, I always say yang. Maybe I <laughs> do I say that wrong? <laughs> I don't know. It might be a Canadian <laughs> thing. Okay. That bridge is a little twang here with yang. But anyway, um, what, what I would say, I mean, yin and yang are, are broader, uh, but when we bring them down into the relational world and then we create the parallels of masculine and feminine energy, um, the influence matrix looks at the relational world in a way that affords us clarity, I think, about the archetypal yang, masculine, yin, feminine, relational energy systems. And that is it affords us a picture by the quadrants. It creates a quadrant um, whereby if you do power, love, and freedom, you have one quadrant that's power, hostile, and autonomous, which is essentially then framed by a self over other set of orientation. And then you have another quadrant that's framed by affiliation, dependency, and submission, which essentially can be framed by an other over self. Okay. Um, and then the, the idea is an iterative balance between self and other, between power, love, and freedom around social influence. And you need a yin-yang proper dialectical relation. And you would also then say that the masculine energy archetype through its history of, you know, its role in parenting um, and reproduction versus the maternal role in parenting and reproduction is foundationally relational uh, relative to more agentic and instrumental. It's relational field, uh, the archetypal feminine. And so it's more initially moving to see relational dynamics rather than instrumental dynamics. And it's more positioned to like, track the other uh, over self position relative to the self over other. Although, as you say, I mean, in a network of relation needing to reproduce, these things are always contextualizing each other. And it's not just simple to say, well, okay, that means the man's supposed to be dominant. No, not at all. Um, but what it does mean is that we can actually utilize the influence matrix to say that there's an archetypal yang masculine 
in the relational field that's sort of a self over other. It's going to have more aggression, anger, pride kind of dynamics, going to be more instrumental and in, individual and agentic versus a more dependent, communal, affiliative, agreeable structure uh, that's you know, archetypally feminine. And this creates a bimodal tendency of experiencing the relational field. Um, and to me, what you need to understand, for example, gender psychology, you need to see our primate systems as having this bimodal relational dynamic. And again, we would want to create a holistic system that places that dynamic in a healthy rather than antagonistic opposing way. We're thinking about these things, male, female, self-esteem, uh, in a way that skews toward um, the individual, the network, the holistic. <laughs> uh, feels true to me, feels maybe more true than models that I've heard from the past. Um, to what degree do you think it is more true? And to what degree do you think it's simply adapted to the technological civilization of the moment? Um, I mean, I'll, I'll put it on a pendulum of dialectical swinging. Uh, I think that the United States uh, in particular, North America in general, <laughs> but maybe United <laughs> States in particular, you know, through the economic, puritanical, exploratory, you know, Marlboro Man vision of individual ruggedness um, swung that pendulum out into like, you make your own life, you do your own thing. The key is the individual reasoner you know, coming off of some enlightenment stuff, it highlighted individualism in a particular way that was out of balance uh, with the proper self-other dialectic. Uh, so if that's the case, then in, you know, history in a Hegelian sense is a dialectical swinging and a thesis antithesis. Um, I certainly feel like as somebody raised in that particular kind of culture, I'm absolutely feeling like the epicenter of understanding to be swung much more into a communal network, much, you know, pull down the individual. I have a very strong libertarian friend. I'm like, that is not, <laughs> you know, there really are collective dynamics. And then we just grant immediate absolute freedom to the will of the individual and argue that any kind of collective is immediate, a power pressing on your green line. No, that's out of balance. Um, there is a massive collective psyche that we're all a part of or embedded in. As you manifest your individual stuff, you then create fractal dynamics in relation. We have to have attention to that. In, and so for me, the pendulum needs to swing. Obviously, something like communism or all sorts of different kinds of notions, you know, overemphasize aspect of the group, um, at least from my vantage point. So yes, uh, I like some of the individual stuff, definitely. I like the recognition of the deconstruction of the self uh, into various facets within and between and then network together. I think, of course, you could take that so too far, say there's no such thing as the individual. Um, you know, we're all one and the same. It doesn't matter. It's like, uh, no, one of us has got, you know, if you get pancreatic cancer, I don't get pancreatic cancer. <laughs> Apparently that's the theme of the day, but, um, you know, it's like, no, the, there is a network and, and there is difference and there are nodes in the network. And that's always going to be a dialectic of emphasis. Years ago, I saw a Daniel Kahneman interview by Charlie Rose. And mm -hmm. Charlie Rose had some wonderful habits as an interviewer when he was young. And one of the things he would do was ask people often at the end, you know, what they still don't know that they really want to know. I do that when I interview some people now too. And Daniel Kahneman said the thing that he still didn't know that he really wanted to know was how um, 
the reward of happiness in the moment stands relative to the accumulated sense of success in general. Yeah. And it made me think a lot about sort of uh, acute versus chronic <laughs> positive yeah. experiences. Totally. I had um, been focused before that a little bit, I thought too much on cognition of oneness. <laughs> and I started to shift to what I called ARCO, accumulated residual cognition of mm -hmm. oneness. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it flipped my childhood sense of how I weighed Gnostic and Pistic. Yeah. So there's a sense in which one way to read Gnostic and Pistic was these people said you had to have the real Gnosis. You had to have the experience yourself because you can't trust the matrix. And mm -hmm. the Pistics were like, no, no, just have faith. <laughs> mm. okay. right? But when you've had Gnostic experiences and you've sort of assimilated them, you are left with a sort of memory of that that is uh, isomorphic to faith. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I'm curious about residual relational value. Ha to what degree does it have to be, do you have to like get a booster shot? And to what degree can you build it up from past experiences and coast on that? So that mm -hmm. maybe you've been out of touch with people for 30 years, but you still remember those good old days and it's enough to keep that going for you. That's fascinating. Uh, yeah, so um, I always thought, well, I'll just say uh, Kahneman begins, so let's, let me speak to Kahneman a little bit in terms of his hedonic model. Um, Kahneman enters the world of subjective well-being, I think, pretty naively, frankly. He basically wants to maximize subjective experience of being. Um, and then what he notes is the narrating um, autobiographical memory structure um, is then reconstruing events uh, in ways that he thought was completely irrational. Classic example is if you're in an uncomfortable position, uh, like get some uncomfortable procedure, um, what the, the memory system tends to summarize it based on, one of the things that it do will summarize it based on the way it ends and the slope of the line on the ending. So he would show that you could give, somebody gives a 10 minute experience of really discomfort and ends quickly at a high level of discomfort after 10 minutes, and then you let them know, you say, how is that? I was like, horrible. I hated that. But if they stay in this procedure for another 10 minutes and the last five, final 10 minutes comes way down. And so they were actually in an uncomfortable procedure for 20 minutes. And then you ask them a week later, how was it? This wasn't so bad. And he's like, holy shit, you didn't, you know, there's a, you added discomfort and the narrative came back because it remembered the end and said, I'll be willing to do that again for, you know, you have to, you don't have to pay me as much. And he's like, oh my God, it's like you construed. That's a fascinating empirical finding, opens up lots of questions. But the premise that you would operate their value structure simply on maximizing your hedonic tone seemed absurd to me. Um, and then he comes around and then says, well, wait a minute, actually we need to have our experiences then contextualized in our foundational understanding. And it's an iterative process of the reconstructed narrative of what the arc of this means relative to the experience that seems to be, you know, kind of a more holistic approach to well-being. And I think that that's kind of blatantly obvious in relation. So then, in and to me, the issue is, yes, we want to focus on the now, but of course the now semantically, meaning just the memory, that's the meaning of now is embedded always in a memory, okay? You can't just, I mean, an Alzheimer's patient has now, <laughs> but an Alzheimer's patient you know, the meaning of now, my meaning of now is precisely because, okay, I'm identifying with the now in the collection of histories and identities that I bring to bear. And while attention to the now is absolutely 
crucial to be able to separate out, especially from cloying, clawing past issues that are, you know, you're attached to for sweetness, you're attached to for trauma. We want to be able to be able to get free of those. It's also the case that those things color, shape, and inevitably afford the semantic meaning. So again, yeah, you know, how to do that, when to do that, but it certainly does that, and it certainly ought to do that as we make sense and relate to it. Alzheimer's is a very interesting scenario in this regard, because one of the um, famously disturbing things about Alzheimer's patients is their tendency to manifest uh, sudden erratic negative responses. Uh, and I'm curious about whether or not some of that could be sourced in their inability to stabilize the longer term version of relational value. If they can't access that because they only have these little windows, then a periodic buildup of the suffering of that long term relational value might subconsciously or even consciously prompt very strong negative affects. Totally. I mean, both, uh, you know, uh, It'd be really interesting to take a look. I would certainly predict that if you have somebody with a, you know, a paranoid disposition, okay, and they get Alzheimer's, the vulnerability from becoming crotchety and disagreeable and paranoid is greater, okay? I also know certainly many people's core personality fundamentally changes. There's a lot that's going on. There's, of course, the memory deficits, but there's an entire structure of the neurocognitive functional aspects that are shifting. But if you're sitting in the now, okay, it doesn't take too much to suggest you have difficulty remembering where you are. So we're going to take somebody, okay, and we're going to take them out of their environment often, place them in a particular home after they've lost the capacity to habituate based on their declarative memory structures, at least habituate cognitively to the position about where they are, so that the system now is constantly online in relationship to here's novel uncertainty, and I can't get a contextual grip about what's operative here, the idea that then that, did, that would jolt the body, the procedural body, say you're, you know, you're under threat, you don't know what's happening, anything could happen to you in relationship to how you'd be taken advantage of, where's your stuff, who can you actually rely on? Um, the idea that that system could then quickly essentially come online to an iterative, paranoid, vulnerable loop where everybody's taking advantage of you, you know what the hell's going on, you're constantly seeking you know, support for the kid that you still barely remember and the nurses and everybody else are seen as uh, completely alien. Yeah, I don't think that that's hard to imagine why somebody would be dropping into a paranoid, vulnerable attack structure where the, you know, core felt sense of security slash relational value is obliterated. One of the skill sets I see crop up in different aspects of spiritual psychotechnologies is a shift of feeling and attention toward qualities of uh, affect that we're experiencing, but we aren't necessarily focusing on, right? So when I'm oriented toward the conversation we're having, that's one thing, but when I take another second to check how I'm feeling, I got this great, <laughs> it's going really well. I like myself, I like Greg, what a great topic. <laughs> uh, so I have some choice in the matter of how I orient my experience. And I think that that's a skill set. I have a friend in England who has been very concerned about the relationship of spirituality and psychology in the uh, medical system they have over there, and very upset that they were using a very client-based uh, situation, which patients come in and they're clients and they have a problem to solve, and you try to solve that problem for them. And one of the things I thought about in talking with her about that was, 
even if a person's goal is, you know, I want to be able to get a job or I want to be able to have a relationship or whatever, they were trying to solve that for them. But if they're not good at experiencing the quality of satisfaction that accompanies that, then getting it won't give them the thing they're trying to get. So you have a real problem if you're trying to help people get to certain functional modes of behavior, but you're not giving them skills to actually experience the thing they're hoping that's going to provide. And one of the that's interesting to me in terms of relational value as performing a social interpersonal function, because in order for it to perform that function for the collective, do I have to know that I'm experiencing it or not? Mm, lovely. Um, yeah, first off, a couple of things. I, I think that people can, you know, uh, William Wright talks about character armor. I think people in vulnerable felt senses of being situate themselves to position themselves instrumentally to defend against a threat that they're barely aware of. That means they have, they're disconnected often from the core heart out of anxiety. So the predominant felt sense of anxiety. So I'm not going to chase achievement value, but as soon as I achieve something, I'm now all of a sudden, okay, have that, but that's not fulfilling. I won't be able to experience the joy in relationship to that. So a lot of psychotherapy and I think spiritual practice, like spiritual technologies is exactly, and we've spoken this many different times, like, okay, how do I get this system, this epistemic system to be in touch with its various features and to be a coherent, integrated, flexible, adaptive structure? And one of the ways you don't do it is you say, hey, I've got a problem, solve it. And this is what I see all the time. It's like, why? Because, oh my God, this is a problem. And the whole point is, well, wait a minute, maybe it should be a problem. Are you able to hold the negative situation, negative feeling in a particular way? Are you able to be present? What does this tell us? You know, I did the 15 part blog series on, you know, what to do when you're depressed. First fucking seven of them are awareness and acceptance. <laughs> I'd rather get before I got to any kind of like do this. It was like, well, be and be aware and then regulate what are negative feelings? What are negative situations? How do you contextualize? How do you hold? Because I want to situate the system uh, in a particular way. Um, so that's one comment about how to maintain. And then what is it that's actually being situated? Well, in the world of neurotic internalizing conditions, I think the core fundamental issue is this relational value dynamic at the need level. Okay? It's like, so if there's a central core need, if there's a central driving feature that the emotion relational identity system is centered around, I think it's this. Um, I certainly believe that we will do a lot better um, understanding both this and understanding our emotions and cultivating a collective intelligence that's resonant with how these things actually operate as opposed to what we're currently doing, at least. I think spiritual practices, um, all the wisdom traditions in some ways, you know, get at this. And I think our current society and the way in which we scientize, I mean, look what you did with fucking behaviorism, okay? We scientize this and then abstracted it into the most basic principles that missed core aspects of this horribly, and we don't know how to socialize it in relation um, to the actual operative process. So certainly Utah's argument is you get the logos right, get the physics logos, the psyche logos correct, we will be in a much better place to create justification systems that shine a more accurate light on the participatory perspective procedural embodiment and be able to harmonize better. So I think, yeah, I'm trying to get of all the words I want to kind of get into the literature, I mean, into the culture, it's like, yeah, relational value, differentiated from social influence, and then wonder how we're cultivating that in our iterative relationship between ego and self, and collectively in the micro, meso, macroscopic spheres uh, that we operate in. 
one of the things I mentioned in the email exchange we had on this was the possibility of mm, almost tactical conflict between social influence and relational value. And I think the, the simplest example is the possibility of people who hold a great deal of social influence, giving people acknowledgement, letting them be seen and heard and seemingly valued as a way of keeping them away from having any power in the system. Mm. <laughs> You're upset? Please express your values. We would love to hear that. <laughs> I want you to feel seen and heard. Now get out of my office. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Absolutely. How do you think about those as being in themselves in competition rather than always convergent or cooperative? Right. I mean, they're, they're, I, I see them as, you know, well, see social influence, relational value as a very complicated, braided set of uh, variables that you want to be looking at an iterative interaction through both lenses. Okay. So in other words, you can do a performative element that looks like relational value Right. And then gets translated into temporary social influence, which actually then gets translated again into reestablishing a social influence dominance. <laughs> so I'm gonna I'm gonna perform like I look generous and caring, and many I mean we stage leaders, right? Okay, Biden or whomever, grab the baby just right, take a quick picture, and do all of this. It's a performative. Oh, I'll value others because I'm so gracious. When it's actually really simply creating a consciousness of social influence where we pretend we value him because he's such a good guy. Um, so the, so we wanna really sort of deconstruct, yeah, what are the performative dynamics for what purpose in the short and long-term that are operative and you know what should we be doing? Well, that's gonna be you know what your values, whatever that, what this says at least descriptively and causally, they're gonna be tr tracking, organizing variables around social influence, relational value. They're gonna be networked together in complicated ways, but they're also gonna be differentiated such that you wanna take the vector of both, look at them from various perspectives, and then wonder what the implications are as you play out the social influence implications and the relational value implications. The cultural domain is, deeply related to, but also somewhat independent of the biological domain. When we look at the biological domain, we can see that over time, the existence of a reproduction filter has allowed genes to optimize for survival, for reproduction. Um, I'm curious to what degree that goes on in the social, because we see a lot of things culturally where we, we seem to be opting for something that's anti-survival. <laughs> Right, or promoting something that fails in its reproductive value. Are, we, are there evolutionary incentives for us to get better at maximizing uh, the exchange of social influence and relational value as cultural collectives? Uh, or could it be just uh, fluctuating randomly? <laughs> well, I think first, yes, it will fluctuate randomly and then there'll be selection consequences. And I don't mean necessarily evolutionary yeah. selection consequences, there's gonna be adaptive selection consequences. So that's what that is happening. Um, my frame is, so in terms of, I wanna talk about the evolution of capital C culture, okay? And then behavioral repertoires and technologies. So for me, there's the whole, um, Tyler called culture the complex whole, I would call society the complex whole. Okay, and you talk then situates society's assemblages in biophysical fields. Okay, so you, you know, you're in Egypt on the Nile. Okay, and then what you get are you get behavioral repertoires, 
okay, that exists then in influence matrix. Okay, so that's one, that's one field, the actual embodied field of primates wandering around, okay, and then relating to each other. And then you get the capital C justification, hey, we all pray to the sun god Ra, okay, and, and then you get technologies, okay, that afford energy transfer and are going to build pyramids and therefore voila, okay. So now you get this whole technological uh, structure. Now technologies are evolving in their own way. You're adding parts, you're selecting, and then they, you know, they explode into whole new areas of energy transfer, okay. And then that's affording us to behave and reorganize our social network in completely different ways. Meanwhile, the capital C system is an evolution of justification processes. We're throwing out systems of justification, um, you know, propositional networks. Hey, it isn't ought. Let's organize around there. No, we're going to compete this way around. Justify here, justify here. So it's a selection, a variation, selection, retention process of level of justification. What I am seeing now, okay, is basically the capital C culture. And because we got this global network, because we had science, postmodernism, rel relative traditional religions, we basically are now creating unbelievably fragmented capital C culture. So the systems of justification are too grossly distributed across a flatland of possibility because we have access to them and we're not situated in a, a reliable, you know, think about an oral indigenous culture networked together around a justification. We're just like completely out here. And we built these technologies, okay? First, the industrial technologies, which then did what it did to the planet. And now the digital technologies, which is networking us together and also affording us artificial intelligence opportunities for behaving and being in ways that are just never inconceivable. Um, the, to me, the evolution of our system is enormously massively in flux. Uh, we're having a chirotic moment, maybe the whole system comes down. So it's a crisis of capital C culture um, in the sense that it's like, well, how are we going to bring to bear particular systems of justification? Well, there are lots of crises, but you talk is situated to look at the capital C culture, systems of justification, see them as a chaotic, fragmented pluralism, and then hone in on the ways in which we could build philosophies, especially philosophies that are embedded in a metapsychology that speak to the human nature coming off of the behavioral evolution of natural behavioral tendencies, specify what kind of primate persons we are relative to the emerging technology so we can consolidate a lot more of our knowledge and thus coordinate and make better decisions. Um, so to me, the wheels are kind of coming off the chaos side of our, uh, of the society culture interface. And that's really uh, distressing at some level because it, it's enormously unpredictable. And we, if we know about the way in which complex systems collapse, if there's too much chaos, too much divergence, you know, the system will begin to burn hot and then come apart. Uh, another thing that technology does is create um, a weird juxtaposition between the in-person and the virtual. And like, I just saw you for the first time two weeks exactly, ago. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Uh, I'm imagining I'm a, uh, a, a young trans Star Trek aficionado, or I've got some sort of specific thing that I would need to have known in order to get that value experience relationally. Yeah. Now, on the one hand, basically nobody in my town I can get that from. Totally. So I can avail myself of these tools and I can find people distributed all over the world. They're going to give me that value, but they're only going to give me that value through this mechanism. And so I'm going to not get a whole bunch of the signaling that I would get in person. 
is this a net gain or a net loss, <laughs> right? Because I'm getting it now, but on the other hand, I'm getting it in an artificial minimalized form. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I think, I mean, I think that's a great, I mean, you know, I talk about the digital identity problem, digital right. identity solution. That's exactly in the interface of, I don't, what are we fucking creating here, right? I mean, I'll speak for myself. I'm super grateful of all the web connections that I have. I'm also going through a divorce and the, the part of the whole, as I connected, just like the trans Trekkie person, <laughs> I'm metamodern weird. And then I connect, I find people and then I'm alienated in some ways, whereas before, I mean, I was probably headed towards alienation and, and believe me, I felt super connected to my family, but I live now in a different culture. And then is it okay to get pulled into this culture? I think I'm in a position where it's okay. If you're a teenager, you know, I'm a full professor. I got a lot of capacity to ground me. Um, hmm, that's really tricky. We're certainly seeing a huge spike in teen, especially teen girl anxiety, whereby the argument of a grounded relational network for role identity embedded in a here and now participatory structure where you get constant iterative face-to-face -face feedback to build that identity, give rise to a relational network that will be a domesticated structure, not to be overly stereotypical, but that's archetypal. And then basically, like, yeah, that's not what we're doing at all. The way we're socializing our kids. Well, fuck, you know? Okay, that's a big, you would argue that this human psychic structure anticipating that coming into this world with all both of its possibilities and difficulties and potential grounding, that's a potential disaster. And I think you're seeing a lot of evidence. Um, so to me, the, it's a brilliant question that I don't have an answer for because the digital is opening up all of these affordances. Yet what would be a sustainable affordance that harmonizes with the psyche and affords us this capacity? We get together for the metamodern spirituality precisely because it's like, okay, can we do this? And what does it actually look like? And how do we interface with the current culture? How do we help it evolve? And what actually is really generative here, as opposed to just a bunch of conversations on Zoom, which aren't really going to nourish the soul? I, I don't know the answer to that. Um, I love its potential, but I also see it often, it's like, oh, wow, there's huge limitations here. And there's going to be a lot of empty calories, you know, a lot of hope, and then a lot of, hmm, failure. I don't know. I really don't. Empty calories is a provocative phrase because there's a way in which uh, food that nourishes us is often different than food that's easy to consume. A potato chip is no problem, but sometimes what's really good for you takes a lot more effort <laughs> and initially tastes awful. You have to acquire a taste for it. Yeah. And there's something about in-person interaction. I mean, uh, our stuff went fantastic at the retreat. But in terms of what's historically nourishing for human beings, very often those are interactions that don't seem immediately or superficially positive, right? It may take some time. You may have a rough interaction with someone. And then over time and in pondering, you decide, actually, that was really nourishing and validating for me. Spiritual literature is full of this where, you know, the guy goes to the master and <laughs> uh, he waits outside the hut for a while and finally comes out and throws a rock at him or something like that, right? A, a negative reaction. But in that, something was transferred that has enormous relational value down the road. So I think one of the problems may be the time frames and the what are we looking at is indicating whether it was positive or negative in terms of its impact on our relational value. Totally. I mean, I think that, yeah, so I use that empty calories, I, uh, you know, the old Facebook and then Instagram and now into TikTok or whatever, whatever kids are using these days. <laughs> but but if you think about what it what's it after? So you're an adolescent. What are you doing? You feel self-conscious. Your, your egos comes online. 
it's like the mother nature is basically like, okay, network yourself and be popular. Okay. Um, so you can set up your friends and set up your romantic partners. So that's what you're after. You're vulnerable. So immediately you got to become self-conscious and then you're seeking approval. So you get likes, you know, I mean, the idea of a like now becomes absolutely, you know, that's, and that becomes the short term. Then we have the super stimulus. Yes. And how many, and we put it, you know, they used to put them all on and you try to get all of these for what, for a snapshot display of you being happy, being funny, saying something that draws attention in a particular positive way. Um, and then this becomes sort of the, the indicator of social influence or relational value that people track. And the argument is, yeah, yeah just like potato chips, you know, um, this is not going to nourish the relational soul um, because in terms of barely being known, now you've got audience capture. Are you really known? How do you really want to, is that really the best place to put known? I mean, we talk a lot about sort of like, okay, John will talk a lot about, okay, what is really going on in a real relationship? Well, it's a reciprocal opening of intimacy, you know, that you want to have a protected container around. TikTok's not that at all. Um, so I think that there is this really, you know, we're, we've got to evolve given the nature of the human psyche and the digital, ideally we'll find ways in which we can see the kinds of environments where those things sync up. And certainly a lot of things in Facebook and TikTok are really saying, no, they're just capturing with super stimuli, a particular structure that's very short term, but doesn't, I mean, look at the wisdom teachers, it's actually what's grounding you in an architecture that's sustainable, as opposed to giving you a quick hit that gives some reinforcement or takes away some punishment, but actually is, is just doing that and nothing that's genuinely sustaining, growth promoting, grounding, et cetera. I don't know if you ever saw the Clint Eastwood film, Grand Torino, but it comes up in my mind sometimes. It's a crotchety old guy who fought in the Korean war and he's got mm. some Korean neighbors. Mm. And there's seemingly tense interactions and he uses a lot of um, provocatively offensive terminology that was common during the war, right? So, but mm. as things on play, he's the only person who goes over, he, he helps them with their house, their son goes missing. He's the only person who's there for them. Mm -hmm. And so there's really uh, a great deal of affinity and reliability and social value there, but you wouldn't know it if you just checked the type of wording he was using up front, you would get completely the wrong perception of what social value was being exchanged. Well, what, I mean, we're really fascinating creatures and the version of justification immediately gives propositions and then you get irony and then you get misdirection. And so we're weird. And, uh, you know, and I'm sure other animals miscommunicate. I know they do, but, but uh, so the, I'll just make that as a general comment. And then I'll talk, let's talk a little bit about the concept of agreeableness. Okay, so in big five trade theory, you get agreeableness. Um, and they're really, especially if you look at Peterson's aspect scale, um, and I certainly see this, I divide agreeableness into the interpersonal style and the underlying core motivational structure. Mm. And I give it to, um, and this gives rise to essentially a two by two kind of deal whereby you're polite on the outside, your interpersonal style is polite and agreeable where you avoid and you'll be kind. But underneath that, are you genuinely caring? Now there's a general positive correlation, but it's not super strong. So you can get people that are polite. Some functional sociopaths might be very polite, okay, in particular contexts. So they look really agreeable. They go along to get along. It's non-disruptive. It's an easy thing to do, but you don't really give a shit. And when the hit, shit hits the fan, you're the first person out of there, okay? 
On the flip side, there's the classic scenarios of crotchety old men in particular, but women too, but you're crotchety, disagreeable, and you have, underneath it all, you have a heart of gold. When push comes to shove, that person. And so basically what you're getting is this red line dynamic at the level of core motivation. Are you really affiliative? Are you really caring? Are you really seeing the other people and valuing them? You know, And this persona of politeness or not, and a lot of people do find sort of syrupy politeness to essentially be you know, vulnerable to amounts of deception. Uh, stylistically, they're more wanting to be honest or, or gruff in that structure. Um, but then they can, you know, often differentiate. And there's certainly many examples of crotchety people who actually have hearts of gold. Is relational value homogenous or is it subdivided into different flavors? Like the same way we might think about the body needing different nutrients. Right. So am I, am I health? Am I getting enough relational value if I get, you know, 10 units or do I actually need three units of crotchety and then four units of, you know, <laughs> yeah. to what degree could it be plural and flavored and multifarious? That's a good question. Here's the way I framed it when I was talking about Jonathan Haidt's stuff. So, so first off, it's relational value of important others that we're tracking. So you create a sphere of influence and then you're going to have relational framing on my parents, on my lover, on my ex you know, friends, okay? In fact, we quickly, when I'm doing the well-being checkup, I look, what's the family of origin? And siblings and parents and then extended family, okay? I then say, okay, then what's the peer development? And then what's romantic partner development? What's group identification? And then what is the recursive ego self? So those are the five domains, at least, of relational value. Um, Generally, what I'm seeing tracking is what do I mean by the relational value? Well, are they seen, known, and valued by the important others? And then what is the social influence instrumental capacity in relation? That's the way I structure it. In that sense, relational value is essentially this that felt sense. There's not a lot of pretty homogenous. At the same time, I looked at Jonathan Haidt, who does this work on well, you have a rationalizing, righteous minds, really mind three in the language, and you're justifying out here. On the, this is the rider on the elephant. The elephant is then the, all these moral tastes he refers to them as, okay? And he utilizes this to analyze our uh, sociopolitical context and why we're divided. And he says, essentially, there are six moral tastes. Um, uh, two are like one well, care and fairness that are traditionally liberal. And then you have loyalty and loyalty to authority. You have issues of uh, in-group dynamics. You have issues of disgust. You have issues of libertarian freedom. And he argues that actually conservatives really value all these things in government and liberals just value care and fairness. And isn't that interesting? And I say, yeah, it is interesting. I think that's a really helpful analysis. He does a lot of good work. But I say these moral tastes actually should be organized around a core social calorie concept of relational value and social influence. So it's essentially he's missing the fact that we eat social influence and relational value as calories. And then we have tastes around issues of love uh, issues of defense, you know, on red line, issues of hierarchy, authority, issues of freedom. Those are all the various flavors that we're using to sample and taste various facets of relational value. So the way I would put it is I think that the process dimensions, there would be content dynamics too, but the process dimensions are the best way to think about the flavoring, while the core cal caloric energy basically is sort of this homogenous kind of sense, at least the way I've originally framed it, as this relational value, social influence, of course, those are two facets of it. So it's not homogenous in that sense, but um, that's the way I would represent it. So here's some 
ridiculous question, which is, uh, if we're consuming in that fashion, what do we excrete? Ah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's okay. Well, you take the metaphors, right? That's a side of the metaphor I hadn't considered. I forgot the ass, Feynman. <laughs> What's coming out of it? Oh, that's hysterical. Um, well, uh, you know, well, let, let's put it in terms of positive and negative as we go back to, and then maybe we can sort of move towards pulling this to a close here because we've been going for a yeah. while. Um, but so if to the extent that I'm in value of va valuing important others, right, I'm attending to those, I'm investing in work effort, there is um, detritus coming off of me. Uh, I was just having a conversation with Scott Jordan, putting us all in sort of energy entropy context and all work effort is coming off of that. Um, as I invest in care, then there's a lot of things I'm not attending to, okay? And, and there's a lot of energy that's put in that that's, that then, you know, diffuses into other areas that are then not being attended to. So at the very least, I would say that our investment in relationship to those, uh, the way we work toward them in particular ways um, creates heat and shifts attention away from other possible elements. And certainly it is the case that I've seen a lot of people who are sort of trapped in particular frames of needing relational value that I would want to loosen. Oh my God, I have to get my dad's approval. I have to have this girl like me. I have to see myself this particular way. Um, so certainly you can double down in rigid ways in relationship to relational value. The, um, the idea of what you need to excrete, obviously the psychological needs relative to the literally embodied um, physical needs are slightly different, although those are fascinating terms. And uh, yeah, I'll have to mull that one over a little more to come yeah, up. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it just occurred uh, to me, but I'll think about it as well, because I think yeah. there's, there, uh, there's certainly <laughs> a negative space yeah. dynamic that I think could be uh, pulled from that. And maybe some other, uh, maybe I'll sort of turn a little less metaphorical than my first reaction. It's a fascinating well, this has got to be pretty much it. I got to get prepared to pretend to argue with Benita Roy about free will pretty quickly. Oh, lovely. <laughs> oh, good. Hey, I look forward to seeing that, Justin. Which side are you on? Are you, are you taking I don't, this? I don't know, because I'm not totally uh, sure what side she's on. Oh, okay. You know, what right, side right, is right. she on? I just have to hold the line and disagree. You have to, have to, have to be the antithesis, huh? the Bonnie antithesis. I'm ready to argue it either way. All right. Well, you see if you can retain your relational value as they take the antith yeah. antithetical spot. <laughs> yeah, it occurred to me we're, uh, you know, who knows how much social influence we're wielding, but we're both definitely doing um, social knowing and valuing, all right? Mm -hmm. John Verveke is doing this, a number of people are doing this. It seems to be a really important function to be able to drop in and hear and understand and affirm people. And so from one well, I will, I, I, I will say, when, when uh, to me, a, a definitely an untapped value, what I would love to see at least especially in like the academic world um, is the shift from publication to Zoom. And of course I've been advocating for this with John and to show iterative process of dialogos in our shared understanding and to model difference uh, and debate while you fundamentally respect and learn and cultivate you know, an, a, a, a desire for dialogos to use John's turn. Uh, so I think, yeah, I think you guys are, uh, will be adding uh, to the general kind of discourse space in a very valuable way. And I hope the Academy can catch up to your pioneering work. <laughs> How's that for relational value? Yeah, so fantastic. <laughs> I feel very seen in the firm. Lovely. Okay. <laughs> Go out there and, you know, get relational value and social influence.
right. win the game. I'll see you in person in a couple of weeks. Always hey, a pleasure to be with you, man. Lovely, lovely. Thanks so much. I deeply appreciate it. Take care.